1 Timothy 1, 12 through 20. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though I formerly was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Lord, we ask that we, as we hear your word given to us, might respond with worship and praise to you, Jesus. We're here for the purpose of worship. We're here for the purpose of glorifying you. We're here for the reason that you would receive all glory and all honor that is due your name from people who you have saved from the depths of despair, brought us up out of the miry clay and set us upon the rock. You have given us freedom and salvation and joy and life through your son, Jesus Christ. And so we ask, we pray, we beg you, Lord, that this evening as we hear your word preached, that it would be united with us in faith and a good conscience like you call Timothy to here, Lord. And that we might, as we pray regularly, walk out of these doors knowing you better and loving you more than we did when we came in. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In your name, amen. Paul's writing to Timothy, of course, here. And young Timothy, God bless him. <laughs> he's here and he's in a what we would today probably call a modern Americanism, a flagship church, Ephesus. 
One of the churches that has an epistle of the New Testament written to it. A church that Paul himself founded when he went there around town and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to whomever would have ears to hear, right? Later on, he comes back to that same church and he's there for more than a year preaching the gospel, encouraging the saints, strengthening the beloved there within that congregation. And then going from there, he goes on the rest of his missionary journey and on his way back to Jerusalem. He knows he's too popular to just walk into town. So he calls for the elders of Ephesus to meet him in Miletus so that he could encourage them and instruct them in what they should expect in the near future within the church. And he does so there in Acts chapter 20. You're familiar with it, I'm sure. Then he goes from there, and it doesn't seem like he ever has the opportunity to return. But his heart is there. He loves these people dearly and mightily. And so in light of this love and desire he has for the strengthening of this church, he sends his beloved son in the Lord, Timothy, to pastor the church there in Ephesus. And apparently when Timothy had arrived at this point, even though Paul had warned the Ephesian elders there in Acts 20 that wolves are going to rise up from within the ranks of the congregation and they're going to try to devour those sheep within the church, they weren't as vigilant as they should have been, as they ought to have been. And some men have risen up within the church that Paul, we've looked at the last couple weeks as we're going through 1 Timothy, has pointed out that they are desiring to be teachers of the law, but are wholly ignorant of the law. Now they might know it in reading it and going back to it, but as far as explaining it and interpreting it and exegeting it, to use a big 50 cent word, they were inadequate wholly inferior to the task that they were attempting to participate in. But Timothy was not. And so Paul sent Timothy and gave him this charge. When you get there, you need to not allow any different doctrines to be taught. Don't allow people to devote themselves to myths, genealogies, questions about the law. Nip that stuff as quick as you can, Timothy. You need to get in there and your primary duty as pastor of the church is to preach sound doctrine to confound false doctrine, heresy, and error. Because the sheep who follow the shepherd need to be fed good solid food. And if they're not fed good solid food, they're going to be unhealthy sheep, aren't they? They're going to wander off and be captured by wolves. They're going to wander off into error and despair. And like Jesus, who was the singular chief shepherd, a good under-shepherd is one who is going to leave the 99 and go seek after the one. And when he gets that one back, what he's going to do is feed and nurture that one. The duty of the shepherd is to care for the sheep. That's the purpose. That's what Timothy's being charged with. 
Now we saw last week, Paul gives this list, right? <laughs> it's kind of lengthy, but we saw how there was a correlation between the list of sins that he gave and the Ten Commandments. And we heard the word from Paul himself basically go back and look at the law, look at the Ten Commandments to Timothy and use it lawfully. And we saw we can use it lawfully in our own lives as well in three ways, right? Number one, points us to Christ. It shows us our inadequacies. It shows us our deficiencies. Number two, it restrains sin. It keeps the population at large or even within the church in some areas from wandering away into sin. And then lastly, and I I don't want to say most importantly, but maybe most importantly, it reveals to us the holy character of God himself. Then after he gives this explanation of the law in verse 11, and I'm picking up here because it goes right into verse 12, right? Now, your Bibles, if you're anything like mine, have a little break there, a little gap, and it's going to have a little heading. Mine says, Christ came to save sinners. Yours might say something else. Might not. But those weren't there in the original, nor were the verses, nor were the chapters. So sometimes it behooves us to go back and remind ourselves of what we looked at earlier so that we can move on forward into what we're getting into this week. So, verse 11 in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now the law is good if one uses it lawfully, verse 8 says, and it's in accordance with the gospel of the glory of God. That's the lawful use of the law. It goes together, the law and the gospel. The law will lead you to the gospel. The law leads to the gospel. The law leads to the gospel. In fact... All three uses of those law that we looked at do exactly that. Lead us to the gospel. Paul glories in the gospel. He basks in the gospel. He revels in the gospel. He is saturated with the gospel. If you got Paul the sponge and you wrung dude out, gospel would flood your table and onto the floor and you'd be mopping up gospel from all over your floor because that's how saturated with the gospel Paul was. And I love that. It tells me, it teaches me, it instructs me, it points me to the fact that if this is how soaked up that Paul was with the gospel of Jesus Christ as an apostle of Jesus Christ. It wasn't one of these things that he learned and it was like, okay, I staple the gospel to the very beginning of my salvation so that I have a placeholder, but now I move on to more important things like the stuff and the deep stuff and the teachings and the this and the that. No, the gospel was the thing that is informative, the very fabric, the very warp and woof of our existence as Christians. There's nothing without the gospel. Sound doctrine accords with the gospel. The gospel is so vitally important that as we look at what Paul says in response to the gospel here in our passage tonight, 
we see that in verse 17, he just kind of stops in the middle of his discussion and is just worships. <laughs> Beloved, I, pr- I hope, I, I do pray, I pray this often, that you, as you would think about the gospel of Jesus Christ in your own life, Christ has influenced, affected you, changed you, saved you from your sins, taken out your heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, whatever phraseology you want to use, that it would drive you to worship, drive you to praise, drive you to glory, drive you to an awe of Jesus. One where you just almost don't have words. You stand there and just... Have you ever worshipped God like that, beloved? I pray that you have and I pray that you do. Because this is the kind of worship that is the impulse, the driving force behind the Apostle Paul. And it's what he's imparting to Timothy, you see. This is what he's giving to Timothy. He's saying, go get him, man. Go get him with Jesus. Go get him with the gospel. Go, go, go. It's all about him. Tell him about him, Jesus. Tell him, pardon me, Timothy. Tell him about Jesus. Tell him, tell him, tell him, tell him. Right? There's all kinds of negative things he has to confront in this church. And the way he's called to confront them is, yes, correct the error, but do it with the truth of the gospel ultimately. And while there might be a time and a place, and there always is, isn't there, where you have to get in the muck of the problem and pick out the nitty and the gritty, you always want to come back around to Jesus Christ. He begins in verse 12. I thank you. Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus my Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. We all have a particular testimony. We all can look to the fact that we sin. Often and sometimes with regularity. Before I was a Christian though, I sinned without guilt. Without impunity a lot of times. In fact, there were lots of times where, in contrast to the Apostle Paul in his worship, I reveled in my sin. I delighted in my sin. It was the joy of my life, as it were. And I pursued it with vigor and with gusto. And what I hear Paul saying here is something similar. He had a focus, a laser focus, if you will. That about blaspheming and persecuting and being an opponent to the faith. You remember there in Acts chapter 8, I'm sure, right after Acts chapter 7, where Stephen, the very first martyr of the faith, was pummeled with rocks until he was dead. 
that the commentary is given that Paul stood there approvingly of what had happened. Now, he was far too high up in the chain of authority to get his old hands dirty with them rocks. But he certainly was not above not only giving the approval of it, but probably instigating a whole lot of what was going on there at the death of Stephen. We pick up his story again at the beginning of Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, it says that he was so aggressive in his desire to snuff out the church that he went to the Sanhedrin and asked for letters so that he could go around the whole nation of Israel. And when he found a Christian, chain him up. Man, didn't matter. Woman, didn't matter. Children, didn't matter. If they were Christians, they deserved to be chained up and thrown into prison and tried and prosecuted according to their laws and perhaps even be put to death. He was zealous for this. But of course, you know the rest of Acts chapter 9 doesn't end there. Praise God. God has other ideas. God took Saul and knocked him off of that donkey that he was riding and invaded his life. Paul wasn't looking for it. Paul wasn't asking for it. Paul wasn't considering the truths of the gospel. No, God showed up God rolled into his life and said, you are mine. You are done persecuting the church. And remember, Paul's response is, okay, Lord, uh, who are you? He answered back, Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see, Jesus so identifies with his church that every man, woman, and child that Saul had chained up and thrown into prison was as if he was doing it to Jesus himself. And so Jesus could say to Saul there on that road to Damascus, you are persecuting me. And Christ saved him from his sins, which leads Paul to say in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful in appointing me to his service. How could he do that? Well, it was because the mercy he had received in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed with faith and love that's in Jesus Christ. Beloved, I would love, oh, I am so tempted to just spend the rest of this sermon in this verse. (laughs) I love grace. I love the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, there's a great illustration. I wish I knew who came up with it so I could tell you this is the cool guy who came up with this. Go read more of their stuff. But I don't know. Grace is the very root of our faith. Faith and love are the trunk of the tree that is our faith. Mercy is the life that flows like the sap in the branches of the tree and good works service are the fruit that that produces. Well, that's good, right? Grace is the root. 
Grace is the foundation. You see, beloved, understand this. You, like Paul, apart from Christ, hate God. You want nothing to do with him. Ephesians chapter 2 is so crystal clear when it says, let me just read it to you here. You, you were, this is Ephesians, same group of people. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You followed the course of this world. You followed the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the very desires of the body and the mind, and we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is a desperate commentary on humanity. That's dark. Paul does not have a high view of man. And rightfully so. We shouldn't have an exalted high view of man. This is truly what people are apart from Christ. Apart from God. We are by nature children of wrath. We follow what our own minds want to do. We follow what our own desires want to do. And we are just like all of the rest of mankind dead in our trespasses and sins. And you see, it takes grace. And what grace is, is undeserved, unmerited favor. God says, you are not following your own way anymore. You are now mine. God intervenes. God invaded Paul's life. God showed up and knocked him off of his donkey. God said, you are not going to go into Damascus as a persecutor. You are going to go into Damascus as a redeemed soul. You are not going to go find Ananias to chain him up anymore. But rather, I have chained you up so that you will do my will and you will be my faithful servant. You see, grace is the very root of the tree that we live and grow and have our being in as faith and love lead us onward towards Christ. Mercy is what flows out of our lives and bears fruit that is called service to the Lord. The grace of the Lord overflowed for me with faith and love in Jesus Christ. You see, what grace does, when I realize how really desperate of a sinner I was apart from Christ, I am apart from Christ, I will ever be apart from Christ. And I think of the grace whereby God says, you are no longer your own, Pat. You are way too bad at being Pat. You are not good at it. In fact, you're so not good at it, you are dead. (laughs) He says, no, no, no. Let me breathe life into you and bring you into my kingdom. Adopt you as my child. Save you from your sins. And Jesus Christ, as he died on the cross, bore my wrath in my place. So when Ephesians says, I am by nature a child of wrath... God, instead of giving me that wrath that I deserve by my nature, has treated Jesus that way and treated Jesus as if he has committed all of my sins in the past, right now, and in the future. 
That's grace. That's the root. That's the the very core of what it means to be a Christian is having the grace of God imparted to you through the death of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He goes on and he says, this saying, verse 15, is trustworthy and of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is why Jesus Christ came. I remember one time, you, you do this when you're in Bible college. <laughs> Fred will understand. When you get alone or you get in a little group with somebody who's like kind of a more famous preacher than you, you know, there's a couple of questions. That, well, there's more than a couple, but there's a few questions that you regularly ask. One is like, tell me some good books to go read, right? That's one of them for sure. One of them is, What's your favorite passage? Or what do you think is the most important or profound? Or, or what's the most crucial passage? And you ask these kind of things. And it's really hard, to, I'm sure, for these guys to pick one. But over time, they've honed it down to two or three so they'd be ready to answer. Because everybody asks these questions. One time, I was with this guy and there was like two or three others of us. And we were sitting around at the lunch table, this Guy had come and to give a lecture at our church, and not a church, a Bible college, and we were sitting around at lunch, and he happened to come sit at our table, and so he was, you know, just chit-chatting with us about Jesus and stuff, and one of the guys, it wasn't me, asked, so what do you think is the most important verse in the whole Bible? What's the most important passage in the whole Bible? And he goes, oh, that's easy, Luke 19.10. And he got up and walked away, just like that. And we're all looking at each other like, Luke 19.10? Luke 19.10? You know Luke 19? None of us knew Luke 19.10. So what, of course, do we do? Well, good Bible college students, our Bibles are right with us, either on our laps or under the chair or something. So we flopped it open. And it says, Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which was lost. And that context right there is Zacchaeus, the wee little guy up in the tree, right? And I'm going to your house today. You know the song today. He brings Zacchaeus to his house. He shows him grace. Zacchaeus was saved that day because of the grace of God. Christ owed him nothing. God owed him nothing. He was a rebel sinner. He was opposed to the nation of Israel. He was opposed to the people of God there in that day. And yet Christ stopped took him down from that tree, took him home, saved him from his sins there at that day. Jesus says so. And then in conclusion to that says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. This is what makes John 3.16 so glorious, isn't it? The reason why it's such a powerful verse is because this is what Jesus himself says he came to do. Let me read it for you. I think my Bible still has it. Yes, it does. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For, verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, right? 
That's what you think the nature, the mission, the purpose of Christ would have been if we truly are nature, children of wrath, opposed to God, rebel sinners against him. You would think he would come to condemn the world, right? But he doesn't. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. So that whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. But people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does evil things, wicked things, hates the light. Hey, they don't want to be exposed. They don't want their works to be exposed. But verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. They see, this is... Paul's great joy here as he looks back to grace and is so thankful for the salvation he has received because Christ came to seek and save Paul. Christ came to seek and save us as well. Then he adds this, of whom I am the foremost. And I just think this is a mark of humility on Paul's part. I think he genuinely could conceive that he was the worst among sinners at that point. I mean, he had caused all manner of problems to the church. And on top of that, he was by nature one who was opposed to God. So not only was he by nature opposed to God, but he was going out and acting against the church with his regular life. Now Spurgeon has said, cleverly, you know how he does it, He says, well, Paul could only write this verse because he hadn't been born yet. (laughs) Well, I don't think there's a competition for who is the worst sinner before Christ came to save him. I'm certainly not in any competition like that. All I know is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He saved me from my sins and I am so grateful for it. So I thank him who has given me strength in Jesus Christ the Lord because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service. I can say that right with Paul. I don't need to worry about if I'm the foremost or the chief of sinner. I'll leave it to Paul and Spurgeon to fight it out and up in heaven. (laughs) But I received mercy, verse 16, for this reason. Here's the purpose that he says He looks at his focus. Here's why I received mercy. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this. In Adam we fell. All mankind fell in Adam. We are by nature, we are born sinners. We need a redeemer from birth. And as we live our lives, we begin to act on that nature and act out that sin and act out what is truly within us, what our nature truly is. 
As we act out that sin and live our lives in sinful rebellion against God's law, which we do know, by the way, which Romans chapter 2 tells us with all clarity, we violate routinely, and our conscience bear witness of that fact. But Jesus Christ, in harmony with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, we're not content to allow man to just fall into sin and all of creation be ruined and fall along with it. No, the Father ordained the means by which salvation would come through the person of Jesus Christ as Jesus took on human flesh, very God of very gods, very man of very man, He lived for 33 years a perfect life under the law, saying, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Which one of you accuses me of sin? And no one ever did or could throughout the entirety of his life. So that when he died on the cross and he cried out there at the very end, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer comes back from the pages of scripture and from God himself so that my people might be redeemed for my glory and my great namesake. Jesus Christ died so that for all time, we would be on display. This is what he says here. I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, first and foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who are to believe in him for eternal life. We are to the display of his glory. Every saved person is a trophy, a manifestation, a, a triumph of God's amazing grace. And a display to the rest of the world that God is patient with people and he will endure a lot of sin and bring people to the point where finally he will save them from their sins oftentimes. God is long-suffering. And we as Christians, as the Holy Spirit comes in and applies that salvation to each and every one of our lives that Christ secured oh so long ago, that the Father ordained oh so long ago, and the entirety of the Trinity is bound up in our salvation all for his glory and the richness of his grace. This is why Paul, in verse 17, gets caught up in worship. You see? This is why in verse 17 he stops and goes, to the king, immortal, invisible, only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. To the king of the ages. In Revelation chapter 15, There's a similar song that is sung, or here it's called the Song of Moses. But in Revelation chapter 15, it says that they sang a song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear the who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. 
all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You see, we are going to sing the praises of God Almighty for all eternity. You see, this, as it were, is just a, a little taste, a little sliver of what heaven is going to be like. Now, I have been in worship services before where I've been singing and just been caught up into the heavenlies and like, kind of forgotten myself. I have been in services where I have been hearing the word of God preached and it's as if this one individual is looking into my soul and with the dagger, the sword of the spirit, the word of God is piercing me through and I am caught up into worship of God. I have come to the Lord's table and partaken of it and have been grieved over my sin and yet in the very same time so joyful over the fact that God would save me from my sins. You see, this is worship, beloved. This is worship. This is worship. And we're going to worship God for all eternity. And the service that he commands Paul to do is to go out and tell other people how wonderful Jesus is. So they would come in and they would worship God as well. They would be caught up into the heavenlies as well. They would see Jesus. You see, that we might be a display of God's perfect patience to those who will believe. He says this is his reason right there in verse 17. Praise God. We are a display of God's grace for those people who will believe. All to the praise of his glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Now, lest this get away from me, we're going to run through these last three verses really quick. Don't worry. We will come back to part of this later on in our series going through the pastoral epistles. But he says, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. We are involved in spiritual warfare. The enemy does not want us to practice worship. He does not want us to preach the gospel. He does not want us to be people who are being sanctified. But we'll come back to that, I promise. Holding faith and a good conscience. But by this, pardon me, but by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. They have, what have they rejected? Faith and a good conscience. And we've already seen how Paul has used faith here in this epistle as he's used this word faith as the things we believe, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul uses this exact same language in 1 Corinthians 5. And you're probably well familiar with that particular passage, but I do want to look at it really quickly with you. 1 Corinthians 5. First Corinthians 5, you know the story. There's a guy who has been sleeping with his stepmom and he says, this is not even something that is spoken of among the pagans. What in the world are you guys doing there? Allowing this guy to continue in the church. He says in verse 3, for though I am absent in the body, he wasn't physically there in the congregation. 
I am present in spirit, and as present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Here we see two clear examples of church discipline done in the New Testament, one in Corinth and here in Ephesus. And we don't know exactly who these guys, Hymenius and Alexander, are. There's some back and forth speculation about who they are, but they're known well enough that they're named. So Timothy knew who they were. The church at Ephesus knew clearly who these guys were. But these guys were so opposed to the gospel and so opposed to the truth that they were, by Paul, handed over to Satan, as it were. They were removed from the roles of the church. They were put out. They were said, as in the phrase of Matthew chapter 18, as you've gone through the patterns of church discipline, finally, if they won't repent, you need to tell it to the church and treat them like a tax collector or an unbeliever, meaning they're an evangelistic prospect. They're unrepentant. You have to assume that they were never saved to begin with. Now, we don't know about these two. It looks like in 2 Timothy that there has not been repentance. The guy in 1 Corinthians actually does repent, and we see in 2 Corinthians Paul's encouragement to bring them back into the fold. You see? It's not a committing of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit like Matthew 12 talks about. Paul himself didn't even do that because he received salvation. What's the point in all this? Seems kind of a little disjuncted, and it, it might be. Maybe the chapter break would have been better after verse 17, but it isn't there. And what we do have is we see Paul's desire for a holy and pure church a pure church that loves Jesus Christ, a holy church that seeks after the law and uses it lawfully, a church that is by its very design one that is displaying the glory of Jesus Christ to those outside the kingdom of God, that they might see eternal life and desire it and want to come in. You see, we should be as those who have the stench of life to those who would believe, and we will be the stench of death to those who will not believe. But the bottom line is, all in all, is the gospel of Jesus Christ is what causes Paul to worship and glorify God. It's the very grace, the very root of our salvation. It's what brings the vibrancy and life that we have in everything that we do. So, beloved, as we hear the end of this sermon, we want to be those who are loving and cherishing the gospel. We want to be people who are quick to repent, who are quick to love and quick to show mercy and also those who, when we have the opportunity, will display the gospel of Jesus Christ that others might see the eternal life that we have. Lord, we pray that as we hear these very words and we have worshipped you here this evening, that you would receive our worship, whether it's through our thoughts, our emotions, through the lips of song that we're about to sing, through the partaking of the Lord's Supper, or all of it all together, Lord, that you would be glorified as we worship you. God, we praise you and we thank you for all of the wonderful blessings that you have provided to us in your Son, Christ Jesus. We love you and we thank you in his name.